Welcome to Cognation. I'm Rolf Nelson, and with me is Joe Hardy. On today's show, we're going to talk about Stanley Milgram, the famous psychologist who originated the obedience studies in the 1960s and then went on to do some other interesting kinds of experimental work across his career. We're going to get into that original obedience paper, and we're going to take a look at some of the more contemporary ideas about how Milgram is viewed today. All right. Yeah. And so uh, Stanley Milgram is one of the more interesting figures in courses that you would <laughs> take, you know, like a psychology one course. If you've, ever taken, a, if you've, if you've ever taken an intro to psychology course, and if you learned about one set of experiments, you probably heard about the Milgram experiment. All right. Exactly. This is This is one of the things that as a psychology professor, psychology teacher, you're just really glad that these experiments happened. <laughs> yeah. Always entertaining to talk about, and uh, I think pretty informative as well. So the original experiments, just to orient people, so the original experiments were conducted in a setup where someone was asked to give shocks to another person who was sitting in another room if they didn't learn correctly. Right. So this is a the experiment was set up seeming to be a learning and memory study, but in fact as a study about obedience to authority. And the people who are participants in the study don't realize that it's a study about obedience until it's over. That's right. So there's some deception involved in this. So in the experiment, the idea is that the teacher, who is always the participant or the subject of the experiment, the teacher gives a set of to-be-memorized pairs of words, and when the learner, who's off in another room, gets them wrong, they get an electric shock. And most importantly, as the experiment continues, they're asked to give progressively higher and higher level of electric shocks. So it starts out at you know, something like uh, 50 volts or less, and then it goes all the way up to 450 volts. Now, in the middle of this experiment, the learner who's in the other room starts saying things like, ah, I have a heart attack. Get me out of this. I don't want to be in this experiment anymore. The right, exactly. I mean, there's there's a variety of different conditions, right? Okay. And and how the, uh, the learner responds is like a big variable in the experiment. So in one version of the study, uh, for example, the uh, the you know the learner starts making some uh, res verbal responses at a at a certain level maybe 90 volts and then those verbal resp responses kind of get progressively more concerning or alarming as you go up up the volts basically then I think after a certain point usually the learner stops responding with the with the implication that maybe something seriously bad happened to this person with a heart condition. Right, exactly. What the main uh, dependent variable is, is how far the, the teacher or the participant is willing to go in, in giving shocks for incorrect answers. Yeah, and most people, you know, most people are surprised to find out that a large proportion of people go all the way to 450 volts. So they're encouraged by the experimenter to continue, the experimenter think, says things like, the experiment requires that you continue, even though 
these shocks are painful. They're not something that's that's physically damaging to the learner. Uh, and it's important to note that these experiments took place at reputable institutions. It was at Yale University where these things uh, were first investigated. So you've got an experiment with a lab coat encouraging you, telling you that you have to continue. And you know, they're, they're trying to figure out how far someone will go in playing a part in damaging the or, or causing harm to another person, even in an, an experimental setup. Now, uh, just to, okay, so that's the basic experiment, right? Um, that you're, you're causing harm to another individual because you've got some coercion and you're obedient to um, this person in the experiment. Um, so some background to this. Now, Stanley Milgram was born in 1933, conducted these experiments starting in the early 1960s. So he was young when he conducted these. I, I believe that they started running the experiment when he was only 27 years old, uh, and he was at Yale University. The, the main, now he, he states this very explicitly. So the main point of these experiments is to understand how obedience to, to authority, mindless obedience to authority works in fairly normal people. He, he had a family that was, uh, some of them were in Germany during World War II, got killed in the Holocaust. Some of them survived and influenced Milgram strongly. So yeah, is, a lot of a lot of this, uh, you know, the the background of this is really the context, really truly, you know, is the uh, the Holocaust and World War II, and just the idea that, you know, what could make people do the things that they did, where they would say, you know, uh, you know, do these horrible atrocities, and say, you know, I was only following orders. And one you know, of the things that this was this was concurrent with. So at the time he was influenced to begin these experiments. Um, it was the same time as the trial of Adolf Eichmann, who was strongly involved in some of the horrors of Nazi Germany. But at the trial, he seemed like a perfectly normal person and you know, would say things like, I was only following orders. I just did what they told me to do. And he didn't seem like a, he didn't seem like he was pure evil. He just um, did what he was told. So how does this, how does this come about? How does this happen? Um, how does how does evil happen is is what he was getting at right exactly and i think you know one of the things that uh that he strongly concludes from the work is that this is a, a thing that's in most people that you know most of us will follow authority uh under the right circumstances and he hit upon some characteristics of situations that sort of optimize that uh and he also you know took a lot of uh, care to note uh, the reactions that people were having, both when they were being obedient and when they, when they were resisting. Um, you know, so I think you know, just the, the sort of subjective observations of what people were doing. So for example, he noted that a lot of times when, when the learner would start to give some negative feedback, start to say, you know, oh, that hurts, or you know, I want to stop, uh, and the teacher was, the participant was made to continue, you know, they would do things like dig their fingernails into their skin. They would laugh nervously. That was something Nervous he, laughter. I think that's something that comes up a lot. Is, yeah. He, he noted that, uh, you know, 
uh, quite a bit in his work that, that people would, would laugh nervously uh, and spontaneously and to the point where he described it as almost, they would have almost seizures of laughter. You know, people would look at the, at the experimenter uh, there and, you know, and say, maybe protest and say, you know, I think we should stop, you know, or don't you want to look in the room? Do you want to, do you want to look in that other room to check if, if this person's okay? But interestingly, out of all of the people that he, he had in the study, he noted that, that none of these people actually themselves got up from their chair and walked into the other room to check if the learner was okay. I mean, the overall sense of, the, again, there, there are tons of variations on this study. So there was a version where the learner is in the same room so they could see the pain and stress that that the learner is under um, and vary just about every aspect you could think of. But the, the, the overall result is that it seems like a pretty robust effect that a good percentage and usually a strong majority of people go all the way to the end of the experiment and, and get to as far as they can go on this machine. Now they've got a machine in front of them with switches on it that say how many how many volts they're they're giving to the learner. And it's you know it says on it danger, severe shock at the higher end. So they know it's something that's fairly painful. And the the subject in this, the person who's pressing the buttons, at the beginning of the experiment gets an example shock so they know that it's painful. I think their example shock was said to be something like 45 volts. And, you know, it's a noticeable, painful shock. And obviously, by extension, going up to two, uh, 450 volts is going to be extremely painful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they, they definitely, uh, you know, are aware that it's painful. And they're getting that feedback from, from the learner, you know, some, in some cases, scream, you know, almost screaming. And in other cases, pounding on the wall, insisting to you know, want to stop the study. And yet, you know, a majority of people uh, in some you know, versions of the study continue. I mean, some of the characteristics of the study, you know, that, that make it more likely that people will, will do it, will actually administer the, the shocks. One of the things that, that they varied uh, where the study was being performed. So in the, in, the most, in the canonical form of the study, it was done at a laboratory at Yale University. Uh, it, you know, looked very professional in the setting and it was like a it's a prestigious school and th those sort of elements of authority seem to be important or influential and in having people believe that the scientific you know nature of the study was was somehow legitimate i think the legitimacy is like a, an important component to it and that the and that, and that the organization that they're going to so obviously yale university um it's a tough organization to question if you're just uh if you're just someone coming in for an experiment middle-aged guy working a normal job coming into yale university you assume they know what they're doing especially in experimental psychology yeah i mean you expect that these people from this this institution are are legitimate and they and, and they know what they're doing i mean I, I think one of the characteristics that it sort of um is important here is who's taking responsibility for right. the result, right? And I think th that kind of is sort of part and parcel to what you were just saying there about Yale. The, the people going there for the experiment clearly 
identify that that Yale is responsible, that the, this professor and this institution are responsible and that they're not responsible. And I think in some cases, participants even said, oh, are you taking responsibility for this? And the experimenter would say, yes, I'm taking responsibility. So the responsibility is ours, not yours. You don't have to, you'll, you're not responsible for anything bad that happens in this experiment. Right. When you watch videos of this stuff, you can see people squirming in their chairs, clearly conflicted about what it is that they're doing. Yet at the same time, they're still going all the way to those 450 volts. Right. They might, they're in some cases sweating. They're fidgeting in their chairs. They're clearly uncomfortable and disturbed, but they don't stop. They don't and stop ask doing. them afterwards and they'll say, I didn't want to do it, but, you know, they said they'd take the responsibility. I tried to object. I tried to stop it, but they kind of made me do it. Um, even though there's no, you know, there's no physical force being um, used in this case. There's right. nothing. There, all of the participants are told that the money that they receive is theirs to keep, no matter what happens. They're not told that they have to finish the experiment. Yes, exactly. And, you know, so, I mean, what do you think, what do you, what do you, what do you think this means? Like, what is the, what are the implications of this in your, in, in your mind? Ooh, so big picture. Yeah, big picture. Kind of take this in a larger context. I would say what it probably means is that people are suggestible. What do you mean by suggestible? People are willing to give a locus of control over to someone else. And we have that we have that capacity to give over control to someone else. I think that's a fundamental human trait that I, I suspect that one key factor in this is, you know, from research that's been coming up lately, this idea that human beings are shockingly cooperative animals, that we, we tend to help each other out and we tend to work together really well. And that, and that means that we can produce something that's greater than ourselves, that by plugging into an organization or something, you know, a, a cooperative group of individuals, you can accomplish something amazing that you couldn't accomplish yourself. You know, as an extension of this, I think people organize into these hierarchical systems where you've got levels of um, control or dominance and levels of submission and you know this is something that you need to do to get to finish a project you know in 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 any project that you're trying to finish you've got you know if you've got a team of people working together you can't have you know 10 20 individual voices all trying to figure out where to go you've got to have some some direction and i think people are ready to delegate to other people they're ready to accept um, direction from other people another version of this is suggestibility by say hypnotism hypnotism is not is not maybe as it's portrayed in movies as something where you can take control of someone else's mind it's the process of accepting suggestions i think milgram's experiments are <clears throat> an example of of people accepting the suggestions of someone who's next to them, not wanting to displease them. And of course the experimenter is hovering, hovering over them. So they want to do what they say. And even though they're conflicted, they may still um, take these suggestions. I think that's what I, that's what's going on. Um, 
I think there are a number of different theories about this, and I think this is why Milgram remains relevant today, that we don't entirely know all of these things. There was a, there was a special issue in a journal a couple of years ago in 2015 that took a more detailed look at these Milgram experiments. Luckily, Stanley Milgram left a huge amount of bureaucracy. So he left all of the papers and everything. It's all available to be gone over, check and see what conditions he had, all the details and nuances. So people can still go through it. And the end result is that the findings are real, but the interpretation of why people remained obedient is still, you know, still not entirely clear. Why is this? Because the kind of experiments that Milgram did are not accepted to be ethical in psychology because he was coercive and he made people think that they were inflicting pain. He essentially stopped the kinds of experiments that he was doing. You know, this this remains such a landmark study because there's never been anything on this scale done since. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, a lot of lot a lot in there. What, what you were just saying. <laughs> I mean, the first thing in terms of just like what does it mean, right? For me, it's clear that you're right. I mean, people tend to be obedient to authority, and that can have an adaptive effect in a sense that. I mean, this is a lot of why human beings are, you know, so successful from um, success here now, just in terms of being numerous <laughs> and widely distributed. I mean, you could you could argue what how successful we are in other in other ways, but uh, certainly there's a lot of us, and we're all over the place. Yeah, and we make things like skyscrapers and iPhones, and we make things that no other animal has ever even thought about making. Uh, changed the environment dramatically and uh, quickly and continuously uh, in ways that can only be done through cooperation. To your point, there there are different modes of cooperation, and the mode of cooperation that many mammals use and certainly primates tend to use is one that is a hierarchical system of authority. So chimps uh, grimacing at each other and asserting their authority. Exactly. Down. Yep. Yeah, exactly. There, you know, this idea sometimes that there's an alpha individual and, and, you know, maybe there might be multiple alphas, uh, you know, for in different ways uh, within a group, different, and there's different predefined roles. And certainly within, you know, you see this in primate societies, and certainly within organizations, in human societies, these predefined roles are quite preserved across organizations. There's like a kind of, uh, and you can make an analogy to like command and control within a, you know, a, a military where someone has to be giving the order to do something uh, or there can be confusion and, and loss of efficiency. So for the sake of efficiency and the sake of productivity, uh, humans willingly give over their individual autonomy and control to the group and the organization. We have this concept that is also, I think, pretty universal, uh, whether it's something that is inborn or something that is learned, I don't know. But we have this concept that responsibility 
goes with authority. In other words, the person who is in charge is also therefore responsible for the result. If it's a good result, they get the credit. If it's a bad result, uh, they take the blame. That's the mm -hmm. that's the theory, right? And so, you know, if if you're something if you're doing something that may or may not be okay from an ethical standpoint, the the responsibility for that goes to the person who has the authority, right? The person who's in charge. So, and that's where I think that, that to me, that's the thread that ties this work together with the the atrocity stuff, right? So the idea that someone's willing to do something that's wrong because someone else tells them to do it because that person is in charge and, and therefore they're not responsible. This idea of responsibility, I think, is super important here because it's like, that's that's what, how people justify it to themselves when they're doing something that's not right. I mean, authority when when you're doing something that's you know that's a good thing, like a project that is that you're on board with, that you're excited about, you're perfectly willing to uh, you know give up some of your autonomy for the sake of the group because you you see the the positive result. There's no tension there. The tension only comes about when when you yourself individually think that what you're doing may not be right. So Milgram, Milgram talked about this in, I mean, his, his theoretical basis may not be complete, but his idea was that human beings could enter into several different states of control over their own actions. And uh, what he called this an agentic mode of uh, thinking that you basically cedes your agency to another person. What this allows you to do is to focus all of your energy on the task and um, not worry about the kinds of things that your supervisor is worrying about. So they'll take care of the ethics of the situation. I am having a hard enough time just trying to work on a basic level here. So he called this ag the agentic mode. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, uh, this is from this review paper. Uh, it talks about Milgram describes this agentic state as a state of mind in which critical reflection and ability to defy authority subside, allowing subconscious individual level propensities to come to the fore. Uh, he, here, the person gives themselves, quote, over to authority and no longer views him as the efficient cause of his own actions. That's Milgram's quote from Milgram. So, you know, basically he's saying that in this state, you, you don't, you just don't see yourself as being the cause of your own actions. You don't, I think that to me that I, I would say that is one and the same as not being responsible for your own actions. You're basically saying, I'm not responsible for my own actions because this authority figure is, is there. It's out of my pay grade or something. It's, it's, yes. not, I don't have time to think about those things. Right. And so then I think that, that what, 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 what is that, what is going on there, I think is, is what controversial, right? You know, I think he, from his perspective, uh, Milgram thought that this was like, you just were no longer really paying attention to, or couldn't attend to effectively attend to the concerns or the problems of the, of the, of the learner. When you, when you entered that state, you were just so all of your attention and focus goes to the authority figure. And there's and, something. Uh, so if you're trying to make this as a direct analog to 
um, Nazi Germany. I mean, this experiment is something that lasts a relatively short time, you know, an hour or so. Um, and you still get, I mean, you get people to do this after a very short amount of time. I and mean, you're talking about obedience for you know, atrocities in World War II. Of course, you're talking about events happening over months or years to convince people to take part in this. So, I mean, you can only imagine that whatever forces are are in play to cause something that happens for an hour are going to be multiplied hugely over a longer time course. Absolutely. And, I'll, you know, I think it's also the case that, I mean, there's a lot of other forces at work in, the, in that situation, in the, partic- in the atrocity situation. You could talk about the, the, the Holocaust in Germany, but there are, you know, atrocities everywhere. There are, you know, Native American peoples in the U.S., Armenia, you know, Sudan, you know, any kind of genocide, whenever we're talking about the, the, the idea of a genocide, you know, these types of forces are at work. But I think in all those cases, there are other forces at work as well. So, you know, you have this, the, the, this, the sort of the collective elements, you know, where you have one group you know, essentially not seeing the other group as, as people. So you're sort of um, dehumanizing another group. I think that's it's different than what we have here in this situation. Because uh, this, there in in these experiments, the person was certainly humanized. Absolutely, they met them beforehand, and they knew that it was a person. And they were one to one with that person in the sense of, at the beginning of the study, at least they they were uh, fooled to believe that they could have just as likely been the learner as the teacher. Mm-hmm. Because they they you know draw lots basically at the beginning to see who's going to be the teacher and who's going to be the learner and they even though it's always the same they always are the teacher they don't know that that they think it's a random thing and they could just as easily be that person the participants were chosen to be sort of similar in in, in many characteristics age gender etc uh, all in in Milgram's original experiments they were all men too right exactly. Uh, you know, as the people who are, uh, as the experimenters themselves. So in that sense, you know, it's interesting because you don't have that that other element uh, uh, of that group component, but you definitely have the authority component. And it definitely is is powerful in and of itself. And so to your point, though, I mean, there's some, the, the power of authority to make people do terrible things is uh, is profound. I think what is interesting about the Milgram experiments is they are definitely tamped down versions of the kind of authority that would be used in, say, Nazi Germany again. That one of the reasons you might think that Germans could turn into such terrible people in Nazi Germany is because they were afraid themselves of getting killed. In other words, if they disobeyed, what could they do about it? They couldn't do anything about it, and they'd likely be court-martialed and killed themselves. In Milgram's experiment, it wasn't clear that there was anything bad that would happen if you stopped the experiment. I mean, they were they were told explicitly the money was theirs no matter what happened. It wouldn't be clear that anything negative would happen to them, except maybe they'd be made to felt, feel bad by someone from Yale. But certainly nothing like it, certainly not fear or entirely fear that's motivating them right exactly i mean there's no no obvious consequence 
to to disobeying the authority in this con- in this context. Yet they still obey anyway. Another kind of obedience that I think people worry a lot about is when there's a disconnect between those making the decision and those getting hurt. So think of war as conducted by the United States, where you may have decisions made by generals or the president uh, to you know, call for an airstrike. And they are totally disconnected from the kinds of bad things that may happen or the way that it actually works. You could imagine that evil happens because there's just this strong disconnect between the decision makers and the people that are carrying it out. In Milgram's experiment, there was nothing like that, and people still carried out these kinds of acts. They were everyone was everyone was right there in the room, and it was clear exactly what was happening. You know, the experimenter was in the room with them, so could see what was going on. That was not the issue. It wasn't that there was a disconnect here, right? And yet, it still happens. So, I mean, this this tells us something about blind obedience in a war situation, that it's something maybe more fundamental or basic that humans are have the capacity for, even in not extreme situations. Right. I, I think that maybe maybe this experiment is leveraging elements of human psychology that are, yeah, that are just really basic, that play out in different ways in different contexts, depending on what's going on. I mean, I think... So hmm. like what? Maybe what's happening here is while there is no threat to the individual for not obeying authority in this context, that threat is somehow implicit in the idea of authority. That people are built in a way to avoid bucking authority? That's right. And either through evolution or learning, you come to know that disobeying authority has negative consequences for you. At the extreme end of that, it could be death. At a less extreme, but but maybe no less serious in terms of consequence is, you know, this idea of being banished from the group, whatever group that is. You know, you're kicked out of the group, uh, the organization or the, the tribe or whatever it is if you disobey authority. So maybe it's that you're actually physically punished, or maybe it's just that you're cast off from the group when you disobey authority. In either case, there's a real consequence to your life and livelihood uh, for disobeying authority. And that is such an ingrained notion that when presented with the trappings of a, mm-hmm. an authority figure, and the, that, that system sort of just takes over. Seeding um, agency. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, in that sense, if you think about it that way, maybe it's not even that it's not that you you don't have agency in the sense that you're you're not doing what you quote unquote want to do or what you would prefer to do in that situation. But you're still acting rationally in a sense because, you know, from from the frame from the frame of if you disobey authority, something bad will happen to you. Then not then obeying authority is in that sense of rational. There's also maybe a sense of security that comes with obeying authority, right? That you know, if you're if there's something comfortable about um, being in a subordinate position where presumably the you know the alpha male is looking out for you, and 
you know, it's stressful to try and buck that. And it's comforting to, to assume that you'll be fine if you go along with it. Absolutely. Now, and you see this in, in primates also, you know, not only is it, is it stressful to disobey authority, it's also stressful when there is no clear authority. When the, when the line of authority is unclear, that is also stressful. So there's something calming about having a clear person in charge and having and actually then doing what that person says to do. So we talk about the ethics of the experiments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you can't do these experiments anymore. <laughs> well, that, yeah, yes, right? and I, no. Yeah, okay, okay. But, well, we'll talk about, we can talk about some exceptions to this uh, in a little bit, but in general, yeah, you, you can't do something like this experiment. And this was, you know, this was a huge deal in ethics and institutional review boards and how experiments work in psychology and yeah this changed the game in a way i mean people yeah i don't think people were necessarily thinking about the the role of deception in in studies and experiments uh before this so at least not as much and and this really brought it to the fore i mean milgram himself got in a lot of trouble uh for for this you know really for the deception part right so deception and then and then of course the stress that you're putting people under it's a, it's a stressful situation they they feel bad and kind of stressed out when they're in there doing it and and then you know you put them in that context in uh, under false pretense mm-hmm. so i mean it's pretty clearly unethical i mean just you can just, if you see videos <laughs> of it you say can... it like it's yeah, an unethical and, study for sure in the i mean and you know if you think about risk versus reward the reward is possibly knowing something more about human nature, but the risk is actually psychologically damaging the subjects that you're using. And, you know, for, a, I think they paid them, what, $4 or something? For a $4 experiment, um, I guess everybody has an intuitive reaction to this, right? That if you were, if you found out that you were the type of person that would go all the way to 450 volts, you're not going to feel great about yourself. And this is something that could conceivably cause lasting psychological damage. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, you could, you could seriously harm somebody, which is not good, obviously. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and yeah, to your point, like, I mean, what are you getting out of it? I mean, it's cool. It's a cool study. It's like an interesting result, but like, what, then what do you do with that? You know, right. I mean, as a general, and, and I think people saw this after world war two, there were some ethical guidelines that um, came about the Nuremberg Code, um, which basically you know, lays out the kind of ethical treatment that you need to have for human subjects. Um, because this is right after the Nazis had performed all of these horrible medical experiments on people. And you never want that the results from those to be you know, to be used or or advanced or even promoted, because the methodology is so horrible. And you know, it's just a an overall ethical sense that you shouldn't be using for discussion research results that have been obtained in questionable circumstances, no matter what they show. Right. So, so I am not a social psychologist, so. 
in my classes, it, you wouldn't be likely to have a discussion of what the Milgram experiments say about the nature of humanity. Mostly, you'd have a discussion of what they say about ethics and how you know how has this changed experimental psychology since then. And that, that there, the influences are profound. People have to go go through much more thorough review processes to make sure that their experiments are ethical enough. Deception has to be justified. Right. That's a, That's an interesting point. Uh, it's not that you can never use deception in studies. And studies. And most most social psychology experiments couldn't get by without deception. There needs to be some. You can't know what the premise of the experiment is. Right. If you know what the point of the experiment is, it basically makes the experiment not work. But you know the yeah. But exactly the 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 nature of the deception needs to be justified in the context of, of, of like why you need to, to do the deception and and you, that that you're mitigating any possible side you know any any possible harmful consequences to the person's mm -hmm. psyche from experiencing that again deception happens all the time now in research but it's usually not the kind of deception that could well, it isn't the kind of deception that could cause any kind of psychological harm, and that's the consideration. So I think before Milgram's experiment, the cutoff line was, does this cause any physical harm to the subject? You know, did you put them in some situation that actually physically hurt them? Because, of course, this is after Nazis are torturing and killing people. And Milgram's experiments brought up the idea of psychological harm, that you could that psychological harm is a real thing. And, you know, as a result of this, he is a huge scandal and a huge deal made of this. And he didn't get tenure at Harvard because of some of these, probably because of some of these ethical considerations. So Stanley Milgram, he was at Harvard for a while and denied tenure. And then he went to the City University of New York. And that's where he finished out his career. That's how, um, I think, explosive some of the ethics concerns were that, Harvard didn't want to get mixed up in this. Right. It was hugely controversial, and a lot of people were pretty upset with him for, for doing it the way he did it. And it's clear that it was not good. <laughs> it, it was, was, not it was good, pretty yes. clearly unethical. What's, what's, what's crazy about these experiments is that they are clearly not good, but yet still, you know, disregarding the ethics bit, still cause conversations today and people are still fascinated by the idea of these kinds of studies only afterwards maybe they think about the ethics of how they were run but the results of the studies are still interesting and still relevant yeah i mean hugely important work no no question about it you know in terms of helping people think about the nature of uh, obedience to authority and uh, I think it's useful as a as a talking point in terms of just orienting people to thinking about how they themselves can be influenced by authority. And uh, I mean, maybe if there was some good to come of it, it could be if it could be these results could be used to help people inoculate themselves against this. I mean, that would be uh, a positive result. Of, of I the think whole. that's the whole. I think that's the idea. But it's not, I don't know if it's clear exactly how they do or if they do. Right. I mean, how, yeah, exactly. How, how would you do that? And uh, how, how would that work? 
there were a lot of, I mean, this is, this is, I think, true of a lot of psychology research that points out flaws in you know, human nature. Uh, uh, some of these things that are useful for social cohesion, but also have negative side effects. And this is a big, these, there were other studies that were similar to Milgram's kind of experiments that Solomon Ash, for example, um, did a lot of studies on conformity. So how people, you know, if you watch some of those old candid camera shows, you see this kind of thing where um, people very quickly feel uncomfortable if they're in a social situation and they're the outlier or they're not in, they're not doing the same thing as the group. Yeah, the so, elevator experiment is, is, you know, the classic example here. So if you get in an elevator and you know, to say that you know that you, you get in the elevator with four other people, and the four other people all turn the wrong way in the elevator to face the back of the elevator, and you're facing the front of the elevator. You know, you pretty quickly feel, feel weird. weird. <laughs> feel weird. You feel weird. I mean, it, you could do this yourself today. I mean, you, if you get three three friends, you walk into an elevator, you can make this happen today. People will absolutely 100% turn around and face the direction that the, the group is facing and then, most of the time. And uh, then know. Solomon Ash's experiments were, his most famous ones were um, asking people in a group to judge which of several lines was longer. And he finds that against the evidence of their senses, they could, you know, people in a crowd would go along with the group with the wrong, with the completely wrong answer, you know, if that group is composed of Confederates that are helping out the experimenter, though, you know, it's clear that one line is longer than the other. If everyone else guesses a different line, they'll go along with it, even though it's clear that that's not the right answer. So people will go to extremes in order to not stand out and sort of go along. Right, and I, in, the, in that situation, you know, there's no cost. Right. To, to going along. So it's easy in a sense. Same thing with the elevator. I mean, there's no reason to not just go along in, in, right. in a sense. It doesn't cost you anything. And so there it's a little easier to understand in, in, in that way. It's surprising to see it, like when you see video you know, of the actual experiments. It's and people saying that the shorter line is longer is, is kind of surprising to see. But you know, at the same time, you can kind of understand. I mean, there's no reason not to do it. I mean, the the other thing with the elevator one, this is something I was talking with with uh, with my wife with with Kelly, my wife, about this uh, last night, and she was saying, "Well, the thing with the elevator one is that when you turn, you're actually looking, you're facing somebody, and that's like maybe mm -hmm. even the bigger social taboo." If you're in an elevator, you can't on a... stand one foot away from someone and look them and be directly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's just weird, right? You just like that's the bigger thing. You just don't look Personal people. Look space. at people. Yeah, don't look at people when you're close to them. You know, on public, <laughs> public Which is most effectively achieved by all facing the same direction. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. But yeah, no. The big, the broader point of just people going along with the group is is definitely there. This is, I think, this is one of the hearts of the meaning of these Milgram experiment, experiments. Is what it feels like to go against 
an authority or a group that's telling you something completely different than your gut is telling you. And part of human nature is to accept some authority from other people because you can't know everything yourself. You can't do everything yourself. You have to accept some information from other people. Presumably the experimenter has been doing this for a long time. They get the larger picture. You just jump into their world and how are you supposed to know whether they're doing the right thing or not? That's right. And, you know, it's also the case that, um, you know, that's the in some sense the positive side of it, right? That there is some benefit to division of labor and organization, systemized processes that in a hierarchical structure has proven to be effective in that context, right? Someone is in charge and they make a decision and then, you know, that decision flows through the organization. Yeah. Can uh, you imagine, I mean, can you imagine a group where everyone's saying something completely different and there's no, there's no direction to it? I mean, this is, that's chaos. You've, you've got complete chaos if, if there's no cohesiveness of the group. Right. And, it, and that requires some people not pushing their perspective. That's sort of the positive case. I think the negative or well, well and more in the positive case too, I think for the most part, like any cognitive illusion or visual illusion, for the most part, it's a good idea to go along with the group and to cede to an authority who's thought about this more than you. I mean, we we accept all kinds of things from authorities because we don't have the time to go and investigate everything ourselves. We don't have the time to fully think through everything it is we're doing. So we accept some guidance from the group or from an authority. It's a quick way to get something done. A lot of times you don't even think about it. There are some no. very basic elements of everyday life that rely on this. You get in your car and you drive on the right side of the road if you're in the U.S. The UK, you drive on the left side of the road. If you just said, "Wow, <laughs> went the way you wanted to go," <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that, I think the, the right side of the road is is crap. I'm going to yeah. drive on the left side of the road. Yeah, uh, that will work extremely poorly, really quickly. You know, yeah, really super quickly. You'll res that will result in in a negative consequence. But everyone just go as long as everyone goes along with it and says, "You know what? I'm going to seed my," uh, you know individuality and autonomy here and just just stay on the on the right side of the road uh, everything works a little bit better uh, okay so what okay so that's yeah you know, but the, I, I i did want to make a point about uh, on the negative side there of, of like negative forces driving people to obey authority and i think how it might again have an implication for the the milgram experiments so where is the power derived from? Where is the power derived from? What's what is the what's backing the power? Like why is this person why does this person have authority? So why and, is it what factors would cause you to be more likely to give your authority to someone who has, as you said before, the trappings of authority? What right. what kind of, what are these trappings? Well, I think it's trappings, but I think it's even more like what's what's behind that. Like, so the trappings to me are are the identifiers. This is the these are the things that that you can say, okay, this person is in charge because they have a uniform on, or in the in the case of the Milgram experiments, this person had a lab coat on. But I, to me, what's behind or backing authority oftentimes is the threat of violence. 
fundamentally, you know, loss of liberty or or outright violence, you know. So think of the case of the police, I guess mm-hmm. is, the, is the canonical example. Police have authority. The trappings are the uniform, the you know, the baton, and the U.S. the gun. Uh, and implicit with that is that if you disobey that authority, you will lose your freedom or your you'll be harmed physically. And you know that that is sort of very clearly played out in the context of, of the police. But I think that notion that ultimately the person, the the authority figure has this threat of violence, I think is something that is just fundamentally ingrained in our, you know, in our psyche. And so I think I think you know there, there in the case what I was thinking about with the, in the case of the Milgram experiments, if you're sitting there and you're being told you must continue with the experiment. The experiment must continue. Why? Why are you so stressed about this? You know, you've just you've so much learning, so much, both in terms of just like physically, you're you know, evolutionarily, and then also just through your own experience over time, learned that and know that if you disobey authority, you're gonna you're gonna be harmed. I don't think that I don't think that you can escape that. I don't think that that's something you can just turn off. Even though you're, t- I mean, if you, I think that's where the all these triggers, all these trappings, basically are there to essentially trigger those uh, reactions, trigger those sensations, associations, and I think that that's why the Milgram experiments were so successful because the the, the participants had the feeling that they could be physically harmed. That's my hypothesis. Hmm, I'm thinking about that. Huh. But to your point with the with the obedience in you know, in, the, in the case of of, of uh, the Holocaust, etc. I mean, there the the case was very clear. I mean, certainly the threat of, of physical harm was was immediate and uh, extreme. I guess this gets to those both sides of obedience: the cooperative aspect, and then the, the coercive. Sort of coercive, that's good. Cooperative versus coercive. That in a cooperative sense of ceding to authority, it wouldn't be a threat of violence that is necessarily motivating you. So it's more the carrot than the stick. And then in the coercive version, it's more the stick. So, I mean, you're talking about threat of punishment and then possibility of reward or you know having a good experience. And I think it may be that both are in play. It depends... I think the coercive element comes into play when there's a conflict. The cooperative element is there when there's no conflict. Uh, you know, so that predominates when when the interests are aligned, when you're on board with the project, when you're moving in a positive direction that you that you're you know with a group, and then the coercive element comes in when you know there's a deviation where what what, what you think should be done is not what there's the, some dissonance. There's some dissonance there. Yeah, exactly. And I think you know these factors work together, but I think it's so, so interesting that there. I mean, the authority framework is so ubiquitous in human society. I mean, you go back into ancient history, ancient ancient history, and you see the same framework of uh, of authoritarian, authoritative, and you know, authoritarian leadership uh, as being a, a core principle of organizing into groups really into if you think about even civilization the nature of civilization itself 
depends on this this framework. Government, sure. Yeah. 100%. Government in general. Yeah. And I guess, you know, one example of this is the pyramids, that um, something that wouldn't be built without cooperation, although heavily enforced cooperation, coerced. Yeah. Um, that, in case, you know, gives, yeah you, gives you the wonders of society, but also had a huge human toll. And it, uh, there, the, 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 the pyramids bring up the other piece of this, which is when authority figures want to justify their position you don't want to just use the threat of violence you want to somehow justify that why you're in charge and historically this is always it has very very frequent not always but very frequently that you know the ultimate authority derives from god or religion and and if you're in charge it is some some measure of divine, divine mandate yeah exactly I think I'm a fan of democracy in that sense. I would, <laughs> I would go so far as, as to say, if you're ceding authority, why not cede it to everyone? Yeah, but I mean, does, does it really work like that? I mean, right? I mean, we, we're we're not going to we're not going to talk, not well, gonna talk about the, uh, the 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 T word, but the I mean, if you think about the uh, the I mean, again, the religious component. I mean, so every president of the united states has been a christian male mm -hmm. i think there's only been like was it just one catholic ever kennedy uh, kennedy uh, all the rest were protestants i mean right i mean this, we have mm -hmm. we have a, a a diverse society and it was set up with the whole notion of being religiously diverse and having religious freedom. And yet authority always, always a hundred percent of the time rests in the Christian patriarchy. <laughs> so how far have we gotten away from the pyramids, you know, like really? Yeah. yeah I, mean, I think, I think all of these things are, I think it's interesting that all of these things may be taking advantage of this, fundamental evolutionarily programmed human nature that one of the things that Milgram's experiments do is frame this in terms of in terms of human nature that you know we're sort of built that way or that's just kind of how we would all act in that situation all right and should we take a should we take a little break and then get back to some uh, more recent ideas about Milgram sure sounds good All right, we're back. We're going to wrap up the show talking a little bit about some of the uh, more recent work that has been done replicating some of the findings of Milgram and extending it in different directions. So we said earlier that you couldn't really replicate this experiment today. And, you know, one of the interesting things that people have always said is, okay, well, in the 1960s, people were sheep and didn't think for themselves. But today... You know, you'd never find this sort of thing again. It was just a product of the time that these experiments were done. And that was true for quite a while. Uh, and then 
there were a couple replications that have been made. The probably the most famous one uh, is an experiment that was conducted for a television show, uh, I think in 2008, Burger. So the, the alterations that they made, so in order to justify this, they made a couple alterations. They said, first of all, what we're going to do is we're going to make the shocks only go up to 150 volts. And this is because of the justification that in Milgram's original studies, if people went past 150 volts, then they would go all the way to the end, pretty much most of the time. Uh, I don't know that that actually takes care of the ethical issues. They also emphasized very strongly that they could withdraw at any time. Um, they gave them smaller shock, and they also had a clinical psychologist on duty. If they noted that there was any undue stress happening, they would stop the study immediately. But, you know, those things aside, what did the replication find? Well, it found that people still would continue on and, and people would still show obedience to this authority. Even under those, you know, watered down versions, you still get the basic kind of effect. Yeah, not everybody, but not but, everybody. You know, generally people tend to go along with it. And not a massive amount of subjects in in these recent replications too. There's also, there've been a couple other smaller replications and replications performed in different countries. And the basic results of these seem to indicate that it's fairly robust kind of finding. There were also a couple studies done in virtual reality. So should we talk a little bit about the pros and cons of conducting a study like this in virtual reality? Sure. I mean, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, the, the, the Milgram type experiment, you can have a virtual reality situation where the person who's receiving the shocks is, is you know, an avatar. So pretty clearly not a human being. It removes some of the ethical considerations for sure, uh, you know, from the perspective of that the person in the, you know, in the VR headset obviously knows that this is, they're not really shocking a person because it's VR. But at the same time, it makes it hard to understand you know, how transferable it is <laughs> to the to the real world situation. Mm -hmm. is hard to know because I mean the whole point is if you're not really shocking the person, well, what does it matter? If you're willing to shock like an avatar, okay, what, fine. <laughs> what is that? You know what is that? Right. Say? I mean, the like the strongest version of the experiment would be take somebody from the United States, put them in 1939 Germany and see how they react to coercion from Nazis. See if a perfectly normal person turns into an evil person when they're in that, that situation. So this is a clearly a watered, watered, watered down version of that because they're, they know, they're aware that at most they're zapping a virtual person. Right. Yet, at the same time, they still get do get some effects, and one of the okay. So there was a a very recent study, and so 2018 uh, by Gonzalez Franco and his colleagues uh, that had a Milgram type experiment set up. They had you know, shock machine, all this stuff, and the person they were shocking was virtual. What they found, and I think this is relevant to the original studies too, is that 
people showed empathy toward the learner by trying to emphasize the correct word that the learner should have answered. So in other words, if they're learning word pairs, you might say dog bicycle. Then later on in the experiment, they'd say dog. What's the connected word? The answer is bicycle. They'd give them four options. So they'd say like bicycle, toy, friend, almond. I don't know where I just got those words. And what it turned out is that the people in this experiment tended to emphasize the correct word. I mean, this, this indicates some kind of subversion of authority that in their way, they're trying to help out the learner so that they don't get higher shocks. So in a sense, this is a little bit optimistic. They're doing what they can. They put this in the context of, um, first of all, participants are trying to do what they can in their situation, but then they tend to get exasperated if the victim doesn't actually take that help. In other words, if they emphasize right. the word, the learner is not paying attention and is not selecting that word, then they get frustrated and then maybe even blame the victim a little bit. Like, I did what I could. This is on you now. I mean, that, that was one of the things that was interesting about the original experiment was that the learner got a lot of these wrong, like a very mm -hmm. high proportion wrong. So it was sort of mm -hmm. kind of a frustrating thing for the person trying to help out because yeah like why can't it's a pretty easy just, memory just task please kind of. get these right and yeah <laughs> you can see that in videos of they're clearly frustrated yeah and you know, wishing that it wouldn't have to happen this way yeah so, so I mean, I, the, the virtual reality so you're, skept you're super skeptical of for this yeah it's like really i mean what do you really I, mean, I think maybe if you can simulate a situation and you can get a sense of what people feel in that situation. Maybe you're getting something, but you're not, I mean, you're just not, not really, the simulation is not that robust because fundamentally you don't, you know that you're not hurting somebody. It's just like playing a video game. It's like, you're, you're saying like, well, when I play, you know, call of duty, am I ceding my, you know, my, my autonomy to authority because I'm like, following the orders of the, the sergeant, <laughs> right? I mean, that's that's a kind of a stretch. Well, you know, to some extent, video games can cause those kinds of sensations. I mean, you can feel bad about, you know, a video game can set you up to feel bad about shooting an extra person that you didn't have to, or there's someone who seems totally helpless and you shouldn't be shooting them. Um, and people, you know, that may, that may cause a twinge of guilt. I think there's going to be a lot of individual differences, though. Some people... Some people can clearly treat it as complete fiction and are just playing around with it. And other people, there may be some intrusion of the way that they um, would act in real life to how they act in VR. So it's if there's no, no real harm, they're not convinced that anyone's really being harmed. I think it does make it a lot more difficult. It makes it, yeah, it makes it a little harder to map it to like real life. So I think we're going to have to be, I mean, we're going to have to be happy with Milgram's experiments and say, that's probably the last experiment we're going to get that was that comprehensive and uh, could tell us something about how obedience works without getting into some other kind of ethical problems. You know, I think, uh, you know, what this 
says about the robot apocalypse is probably a ton, <laughs> a ton, right? <laughs> uh, this is like a la- this is like a roadmap for the robot apocalypse. It 100% robot, is. It's the problem because robots, the first article robots are going to read is the Milgram experiments. Well, they're going to listen to this podcast. Oh, no. Ah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> see, we, we're, we started it. We're going to. Yeah. We're going to go into the future and we're yeah, going robot- to see that. Computers are going to first notice the vulnerability of human beings to this kind of thing and just take advantage of us. Maybe that's the, maybe that's the VR element, right? Because somehow robots are going to leverage those trappings of authority to make us feel like you know, we should be obeying them and following them. They're going to use all these techniques and and we'll like be convince us. Happy. We'll be happy doing yeah, we'll it. We'll be happy, you know, as we're going along until things get, you know, get crazy. And then it's too late. And they, they start, you know, putting us in pods. And, yep. and you know. As, we, as they will eventually. <laughs> as they that. ultimately will. Of course. Hello. Then, then yeah, then we won't, we won't feel so good about it then. It'll be too late. Too so what can late. we do to, what can we do to stave this off? How do we inoculate ourselves from blindly following authority? I don't know. I do not know. Maybe knowing about this helps. Right? Just it's a knowing, starting point at the very un- least. Understanding ourselves and understanding our predisposition to, to obey authority. Uh, maybe we can try to check ourselves in the context of that or, or why are we doing this or just because we're told to do it is that is that okay uh, should we be questioning questioning what we're doing that it's perfectly within your rights to to question something that seems a little fishy right even if you don't even if you can't see the whole picture you can uh you can notice that something's off and feel confident in yourself that you're that, that you can have a legitimate viewpoint it's I tough. That, I mean, that, that's tough. a hard, that's a hard, it's hard to buck the system, of course. And it's also the case that it, the consequences of doing so are real very often. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's, you can get yourself, you can find yourself in trouble. I mean, that's what being in trouble means. <laughs> yeah. Right? Right. You know, you're, you're in conflict with authority in some capacity. Now, whether you are in the right or in the wrong. I mean, I guess that's the point, right? Is that you can be right and be in conflict with authority. And that happens all the time. And it just is not something that we really think about. You know, in the average person's day to day, usually you're told and expected to do what you're told and expected to do. <laughs> Right, you teach your children to obey you, and you know their teachers and other authority figures, and you just grow up, and then uh, at some point you're an adult, and you're doing the same thing. That's right, but maybe consider it on the other extreme too. So, what happens if you if you are extremely skeptical of authority, as I think a lot of people in the United States are? Yeah. What happens if you're if you're totally dismissive of any kind of authority, you might get into flat earth theory or some other kind some hmm. other kind of crazy way of thinking that you're unwilling to accept any authority or that any authority is as good as any other, that 
you know, so-called experts don't know what they're talking about. Uh, so there's a, I mean, there's a danger in that way of thinking too. There's, our society is complicated enough that it is impossible not to cede some authority to other people. We cannot accomplish everything on our own. You can't do anything on your own. You can't yeah, do, anything, can't on do anything on your own. Even if you wanted to, but yeah, I mean, you, you just can't. We rely. We're social beings. We rely on each other. We need each other. That's that's the long and the short of it. There's no way around that. How do you do that and live an individual life uh, with your own sense of morality? I think is the question. I don't well, think we're going to answer it here, but today we're not going <laughs> to answer here. But I will say that I mean, one thing, one place where I think that directly addresses this is at the when you're voting. So in a democracy, this is exactly the point at which you have the chance to defy authority. If you don't like the leadership, you can vote. Nobody's going to check your vote or penalize you for how you vote. And that's how we elect our leaders. So, so hope so, you know, far, so far. We have some we have some faith in this system. Maybe it's not always perfect, but no, I definitely encourage voting. I like that. that I like that thought. Um, but I think there's other ways to, you know, other places, you know, to see something, say something, you know, it's like, if you see something that seems wrong, say something about it, be that person who says something about it. There's a chance to be a hero in that, you know, back to our, our hero episode mm -hmm. <laughs> with, with Stephanie. Yeah. Um, the most important moment in your life might be when you are disobeying or, or going against the grain. Well, that's like really, I think that's a really good point. I like that idea that, um, and you know, that's one of the ways that we see heroes is people who manage to see things correctly and act on their, act on their actual beliefs instead of doing what they're told. I mean, uh, Kennedy's profiles in courage is about remarkable people who showed courage by defying authority. So in a lot of ways, I think we we tend to celebrate that in America. It, it, uh, that might be a good place to wrap it up. I think that's a, a, a nice thought to to kind of complete the picture here. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I think that's a great great topic. Uh, something that's very relevant for today, and you know I think will continue to be relevant into the future. Obedience to authority and how to maybe inoculate yourself against blind obedience to authority without blindly rejecting <laughs> ideas that are good that from people who know more about the things than, than you do. All right. Thanks for listening.